last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. A very smug Steph McGovern because Middlesbrough beat Chelsea! Okay, well, I was going to congratulate you and since you've got in in your <laughs> smug way, I'm not going to anymore. Yeah, first leg though. <laughs> I need to remind myself. Anyway, should we talk about what is coming up on the show? Yep, so obviously, like the whole nation, we're gripped by the scandal and tragedy of the way that the post office wrongly prosecuted, hundreds of sub-postmasters. Now, there are massive implications for government procurement. There are massive implications for the rollout of AI from all of this. This may surprise people. This is a hugely important, not only story about things that went wrong in the post office, but about how government and indeed business should be run in future. Yeah, and uh, a big part of that story is an over-reliance on technology. So we'll also be talking uh, today about Apple, most valuable company in the world. But is that about to change? Phone sales are falling. We'll be talking about what's next for them. And also, how easy is it to buy a home? Because the chairman of NatWest has gotten a bit of bother over his comments suggesting it wasn't that difficult. So we will give you our views on that. Should we start by talking about this story that's got the nation gripped at the moment? Ever since the ITV drama about the post office scandal came out this week, it's millions and millions of views now, hasn't it? 15 million, I think, something like that. Yeah, and it's like one of the most downloaded dramas, particularly of this year, definitely. And those of us who work at ITV, we're thrilled that we're getting all this positive publicity rather than people making allegations about the behaviour of presenters. Very good news. Yeah, but... Behind this is a story about 4,000 people who run post offices wrongly being investigated for theft because of flaws in the IT system. It led to 700 prosecutions of submasters between 2000 and 2014. I think it's up to over 900 actually now with the latest tallies. Yeah, but I mean, there's heartbreaking stories here of the damage it's done to families and communities. You know, there's a huge human cost here as well as the financial costs. I know that our other fab sister podcasts, The Rest is Entertainment and The Rest is Politics, have been looking at this from the political angle, from the media angle. And, and we want to focus as well 
on the business side of this? Because this is a huge business cock-up, isn't it, Robert? I mean, th- there are so many aspects of this. We, we want to look at the role of Fujitsu, the contractor that seems to have been paid 2.4, 2.5 billion pounds since it first got the contract in 1999 and has billions of pounds of work with the government. And we, you know, just to remind people, post office is owned by the British people. It's owned by the government. Um, one of the reasons why I find this even more appalling is this is not some rapacious commercial company doing down vulnerable sub-postmasters. This is the state Mm. doing this. I mean, I was struck this morning, you may have seen this, that the FT has reported only this morning that procurement records from the government show that Fujitsu was involved in £4.9 billion of solo and joint public sector contracts after, this is the important point, after the December 2019 court judgment that showed that its system, that the one that it had with the post office, had done all this harm to these hundreds of sub-postmasters. So, so the government continued to award billions of pounds of contracts. And Rishi Sunak himself, according to, again, the FT, was chancellor when £3.6 billion was awarded to Fujitsu. Massive questions to answer. And so this, just for people to understand as well, this is a system This is a, that was outsourced, wasn't it? So it was an IT system that the post office outsourced to Fujitsu back in 1999. And this was all part of this drive by successive governments, Tory and Labour, to get the public services, public sector to modernise. And so... Mm. They did this, I think, initially with the right kind of motive is we want a more efficient yeah. you know, network of, of, of post offices. So it was brought in in 1999 and then the problem started not long after. So as, as someone who, uh, you know, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time covering this story over the years as well and interviewed some of the families who were caught up in all of this. There's one in particular that hit me that I think also shows the problems that Fujitsu and the post office will have right right at the start. So brilliant guy called Peter Holmes, who was a sub postmaster up in Newcastle, he really respected pillar of the community as as the you know so many of them were. He was a former police officer and kind of essentially retired into becoming a sub postmaster. Now, when this system was brought in, he had problems with it straight away. I mean, sadly, he's no longer with us. You know, he, he died in, in 2015 of a, a brain tumour and was still seen as a criminal then. He'd been accused of stealing £46,000. But his widow now, Marion, is saying, he said right at the start, this is really complicated. You know, things aren't working out for me. Rather than Fujitsu doing proper training or the post office doing proper training on all of this, they seem to have all been just left to their own devices and then, shockingly, accused of, of theft the minute, you know, that there were problems with the numbers. And so there are sto- so many stories like this. And it shows, I think, that there, there were problems with this system straight away, which is another point about how, well, shit the management were. And, and so among the things that we need to get to the bottom of is one of the things that happened in Royal Mail, which for quite a lot of the period in which Horizon was brought into the, the business and then rolled out, Royal Mail was the owner, Right. And you will remember the bloke called Alan Layton. Do you remember Alan Layton? So he was one of the big sort of business figures of the 90s and early part of the century. He was brought in uh, as chair 
Adam Crozier actually was went on to become chief executive of ITV. He was chief executive. Who wasn't mentioned in the ITV drama. Um, Adam Crozier, for example, has, as I understand it, put out a statement saying that he knew nothing about Horizon, wasn't involved in it. I mean, one of the questions is, if they were the holding company, he was the chief executive. Why? Yeah. Well, Did he not? I mean, so there are all sorts of absolutely gripping and important questions of a governance nature. You know, who was responsible? Where was the oversight? You know, given that we now know that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sub-postmasters, sub even those who didn't end up being accused of stealing, even those, but others were still finding it incredibly difficult. Why was there no system within this yeah. organisation picking up their concerns, talking to Fujitsu about how to sort it out? And it is amazing to me yeah. that there are still so many of these really big, basic questions that are un answered. Yeah. Um, it might be worth focusing just on one aspect of this, which is the control at the centre of the actual system. So look, what I'm not going to share with you is a letter, or in fact, a couple of letters that were sent in June 2020, one by the boss through 10 years of post office, Paula Vennels. This is a letter to the bloke who was then chair of the Commons Business Committee, a bloke called Darren Jones, uh, who's now a Labour frontbencher. And then there's also a letter from Rob Putland, the senior vice president at the time of Fujitsu. Now, I mean, there are a number of things that Fujitsu said, and this seems to me to be sort of astonishing, really. So what's put to him is that, you know, that incredibly important case brought by the sub-postmaster, Alan Bates, who's at the heart of the ITV yeah. drama, the one where at last the judge said, this has been a terrible miscarriage of justice. These people have been wrongly found guilty. This is what the judge said. The, the judge said Fujitsu gave a very one-sided picture, which was to omit any reference to important contemporaneous documents that criticise or demonstrate any deficiencies with Horizon. In other words, they withheld really vital information central to establishing whether or not these people were guilty or innocent. And what he said was, Fujitsu was not a party to the Bates versus Post Office litigation. All decisions relating to the prosecution of sub-postmasters and the conduct of the Bates litigation were made by the post office. While Fujitsu employees gave evidence, it was the post office who determined all aspects of its case, including the choice of witnesses, the nature of their evidence and the associated documents. I mean, it is sort of astonishing that they're saying, yeah, they gave information to the post office and it was up to the post office to decide what to put forward. But there is another really important aspect of all of this that was brought out in this letter. So again, the question is put to him. It says, the judge established that there were errors and bugs within Horizon and that remote access to Horizon terminals was possible and transactions could be changed without a sub-postmaster knowing. He said that some of this only came to light because of the group litigation. In other words, for years, there was this fiction that was perpetrated that there was no way for Fujitsu or the post office to get access to these terminals that were in 
the post office is. And this just turned out to be wrong. Do you accept, says the letter, that Horizon terminals could be accessed and altered centrally? Yes, local Horizon terminals could be accessed and altered centrally. Why did it take a highly expensive court case, he's asked, to establish these facts? This is a matter for the post office. They determine the litigation strategy and their conduct towards and the sub-postmasters. The reason this is absolutely central is because one of the things that appears to have happened is that data on these computers was changed and nobody really knows why the data was changed, why the balances that were being shown on these accounts went from, you know, one week somebody was in credit, then they were in deficit, then they were in credit again. And part of the reason why many of these sub-postmasters were pursued is because of this idea that somehow this was all being manipulated by them. If it's the case and this is what the inquiry will have to establish. That part of the reason this data swung all over the place and that it looked as though, you know, for example, some sub-postmasters owed money when they really didn't. If that was caused by, for example, Fujitsu centrally accessing the computers, trying to fix bugs, and in the process, changing the balances in a way that was distorting the position, that means that they were, whether they, you know, this is not to say that they did this deliberately, this is plainly a cock-up on a catastrophic scale. But nonetheless, if that happened, liability massively has to go with the post office and with them. And so, I know I'm slightly laboring this point, but I want to give you another example of why this matters so much. Because in Venels' own evidence, she herself is asked about this. So, again, this is the question they put to her. In 2015, you, Venels herself, as boss, asked internally whether sub-postmasters' transactions could be accessed and altered centrally without their knowledge, right? You were told that this was not possible. Do you think, that with the benefit of hindsight, that you might have been badly advised? Were you provided with subsequent information that changed your understanding? How do you explain the revelation during the Bates versus Post Office court case that local branch transactions could indeed be accessed and altered centrally? And she says, given my personal involvement, I have read with care the parts of the Bates versus Post Office judgment which deal with remote access. The judge was right to conclude that I was trying to get to the truth. The issue of whether Post Office or Fujitsu had the ability to access and alter branch information remotely had been raised during my evidence to the committee on February 2015. I wanted to give an answer that was direct and factually accurate. I raised this question repeatedly both internally and with Fujitsu and was always given the same answer, that it was not possible for branch records to be altered remotely without the sub-postmaster's knowledge. Now, you know, it is unbelievable that years have to pass, and it has to come out in a court case, that what the chief executive herself, the boss herself, was told internally was wrong. Well, that's what blows my mind in all of this, is the dogmatism. Is It's the fact that 
you know, the, the bosses only were looking at this in, in a one siloed way. Like I, I've spent a bit of time with Paula Venels when she first became chief executive. I think she joined in, in 2007 and then kind of worked her way up. She'd had quite a few big jobs in the corporate world before that. She worked for Whitbread, which is, of course, big hospitality business. She worked for L'Oreal. And um, I was doing like this series for the BBC about the day in the life of a CEO. So I'd worked with various different CEOs to do this. And she was one of them and she'd not long been CEO, I think only for a few months. And we kind of went round to different post offices where she was, you know, talking to the, the different people who were coming into the shop, talking to staff. She was kind of doing one of those, you know, back to the shop floor type things that, were, you know, you, you'll have done loads of them with various bosses in your time as well. And I don't know about you, whenever I go to meet a business leader, I always think, right, they're, they're often quite charismatic, aren't they? And they, they've got a sense of, they normally, when they walk into the room, they kind of command a room quite well. And she wasn't like that at all. She was, you know, fairly, for want of a better description, quite square. She didn't really seem to she, be she's, someone... She's in, an evangelical Christian as yeah, well, Yeah, she, she is very religious. She did remind me of one of my RA teachers at school and was quite she wasn't very good at talking to people I was really surprised on the shop floor when I was with it it was quite awkward she didn't have that relatability I, you know she didn't really know how to this is from what I saw obviously I didn't work with her every day forever but I just this was from the limited time I spent with her but she just couldn't talk to real people and I wonder if that was part of the problem I couldn't see any empathy with people when they were coming in to hurriedly sort out their parcel or sort out the things she was really awkward with them and they were all a bit like who is this woman or even talking to staff it just felt uncomfortable and I wonder if she kind of lacked that ability to see things from other perspectives to me she was someone who stood looked at someone quite narrow-minded a stickler for the rules and you know i know she got the business back into profit didn't she but let's talk about getting the business back into profit i mean it's been pointed out that her remuneration including bonuses ran to millions of pounds and that was a reward for as you say seemingly getting the business back into profit but we now know given the scale of compensation that's going to go to these sub-postmasters, or some of it's gone, more, much more compensation is going to be paid, that is a real cost to the business. And therefore, we now know that at least some, possibly all of the profit was illusory. I mean, if the business was badly managed, which yeah. it appears to have been catastrophically in a way that has only more recently become as clear as it is now, then that compensation relates to bad management. Those profits now, you know, just from a common sense point of view, look like a fiction. You can't and believe on that the basis, numbers. And on that basis, the question is, does she have a moral duty to hand back those bonuses? Is there a legal case? It is very, I mean, I, you know, somebody who's looked at this whole issue over many years of people who get bonuses for destroy, you know, while destroying a business. It is very difficult to get money back from executives once they've been handed out. You know, I'm absolutely certain. I mean, in fact, it's quite clear talking to you know, ministers that they're going to look at this issue of whether they can get money back, whether it's from you know, her, whether it's from Fujitsu. I mean, one of the things that is absolutely astonishing in all of this is that up to now, Fujitsu has not paid back any of the you know, roughly two and a half billion that it's 
received. So there will now be a whole set of processes to decide liability. This is not just a point about the post offices. It was a point about the banks back in 2007-8. It's a point about any business that gets into serious difficulties after a period in which it looks as though things have been good. If it's clear that the boom time was based on a fiction, then there has to be a mechanism to get bonuses back that were paid out during that period. Yeah, and especially given how much money the you know we've spent in fighting these cases and compensating them. I mean, we've had quite a few questions on that about, you know, how much has this whole thing cost us so far? So, you know, millions of pounds has been spent by the post office trying to fight these sub-bastards in this landmark court of appeal case. And overall, this is expected to have cost the taxpayer about a billion pounds so far but and there's rising. lots of people estimating this is going to be a lot more because of all the you know the inquiries and the compensation so I'm saying it's going to be closer to two billion pounds to be absolutely clear that would mean you know if you simply spread that loss out over the last 20 years that the losses on an annual basis of this business you know would be yeah. very very significant but this is not just about the past and I think the other thing that one needs to look at here is what it means, n- not just for the future of the post office, but actually for what kind of oversight we have when processes are automated. And this matters more than ever. You know, every week we talk about this industrial revolution we're going through with artificial intelligence, where we are now moving into an era where humans will be taken out of so many business and public service and processes. You you told me something really fascinating this yeah. morning before we, we started this record that I didn't know about how, in a legal sense, how technology always wins as evidence. Well, it's a, that, that, that's absolutely relevant to the point I'm making here. One of the things that is shocking about the cases that were brought against the sub-postmasters is they rested on a part of the law that now looks not just archaic, but scandalous. So in courts, it is taken for granted that evidence from a computer is the truth, that it is factual. And it's a sort of equivalent of an expert witness, or worse than that, computers are you know, essentially regarded as the equivalent of sort of weighing scales. If, 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 if a set of scales say that's the weight, if, mm-hmm. if data comes out of a computer, particularly on something like, let's say, you know, the deficit in a sub-postmaster's account, that is just taken as the truth. And that's scary, given, that the, it is given where scary. we're going. It is just incredibly scary. And therefore, you know, given that the sub-postmasters and indeed their defence councils are not computer experts, they had no ability to prove in court that the reason why these deficits were there was because of a malfunction in a computer. You know, because the onus was on them to somehow prove it. But how, what, you know, how are they ever going to prove that? And so going back to the this issue of how much of the way that public services will operate in future, how much business will operate in future, will rely on much more sophisticated artificial intelligence systems. They will get things wrong, and there ha- and the courts have to recognise they will get things wrong. And what is sort of again somewhat depressing is, you know, I referred to this bloke Darren Jones, who's a Labour frontbencher, was chairman of the Business Select committee. He raised in a debate, I think a couple of years ago, that this law on computer evidence was not fit for purpose. 
And I think there was a special debate about it in Westminster Hall. And the, you know, the government has repeatedly said it's going to look at it, but nothing has been done. Um, now, the one good thing that could perhaps come out of this disaster... Oh, my um, God, is, he's picked his book up, yeah, everyone. I have picked up, but I have, I have picked, I have picked up Bus. Oh, my God, uh, he's going to read and, a quote from it. Uh, he's not going to read from it. <laughs> I just want to say, by the way... Yeah, well, if it's you're available gonna, in all good bookshops, is if what you're you, If you're yeah. going to read from it, that ups the amount you have to pay me. So it's not a tenner, it's 20 quid if you're going to read from it. <laughs> what I was going to point out is there was... In the Netherlands, a very similar, what you might call machine link scandal. This is interesting. In 2013, tens of thousands of Dutch parents received excessive tax bills. The tax authorities had used a self-learning algorithm to generate risk profiles that were intended to identify childcare benefit frauds. Tens of thousands of families, often on low incomes and often belonging to ethnic minorities, were pushed into poverty. Because they they took on exorbitant debts as a result of the actions of the tax agency. There's some very good work actually done by Politico. And they pointed out that tens of thousands of families, often on lower incomes or belonging to ethnic minorities, were pushed into poverty because of the exorbitant debts that the tax agency forced on them. Now, very much like this awful scandal in the UK over the post office, you know, we know in that case, four sub-postmasters took their own lives. In the case of this Dutch scandal, where these vulnerable people were forced into poverty by an algorithm that went wrong, some of those took their own lives. More than a thousand children taken into foster care as a result of essentially families falling apart as a result of this. And there was a sort of racial bias. It targeted people in particular with dual nationality. In particular, those of Turkish and Moroccan descent got a disproportionate share of the crippling bills. And one thing I, you know, that, that, that is relevant to all of this, which is also gives some, shows you why the government is now slightly panicking to try and catch up, is this actually did lead to the resignation of the Dutch government in January 2021. And the tax administration was ultimately fined for unlawful, discriminatory and improper racial bias. That's shocking, um, that, isn't it? When I was growing up, when I was a kid, there was that whole thing with expert witnesses being given too much credibility in court. And there were loads of kids in Cleveland who were taken away from their parents because one doctor whose daughter I went to school with, she was in my class at school, her mum, this Professor Higgs, had come up with this test to see whether the kids have been sexually abused and it got seen as being the legitimate way to test children and every kid who went to the doctors in the you know in Cleveland back in the 80s quite a lot of them ended up getting this test and loads of kids were taken away from the parents including people I went to school with and then it got proven obviously this test was rubbish and I remember the day being in school when one day the daughter of the professor was I was in my primary school turned up and just took a kid and legged it out of the area like I remember in the playground she just came and swept up a daughter and went because all the parents who'd had their children taken off them in Cleveland were all after her, rightly so, because it was absolutely shocking. I know it's not connected to algorithms and computers, but I guess it's about that point, about we always believe the people in power, don't we? And they're the ones who get the credibility in court rather than the... We have a lot of confidence, rightly in my view, in most cases, in people who are legitimate experts. But when 
what either the machine says or the expert says goes contrary to common sense at that point it is beholden on anybody in authority to say maybe the expert is wrong or in this case maybe mm. the machine is wrong why wasn't anybody in a position to say this is just counter to common sense. Why suddenly have we got a mafia-like organisation when historically we've been one of the most trusted community organisations? Why didn't somebody say, you know, it's obviously the case that this is just the machine somehow or other getting it wrong? But the fact that they didn't is the biggest reason why, as we go into this AI revolution, checks and balances have to be put in place. Right. I think we should probably take a break after all that. And we're, uh, after the break, we're going to talk about another technology company, aren't we? But one that tends to get it right, given it's the most valuable company in the world. Although it's not getting it completely right at the moment, is it? Mm, no, that's what we'll be talking about. So let's have a little break first. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Peston. Just to remind you all, before we carry on and talk about Apple, um, you might want to listen to our interview with Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor. We did that this week, which was very insightful. I think we both learned stuff from it. So hopefully you will too, and you can find that in uh, your usual podcast feed for this show. So we're going to talk about Apple now, aren't we? We are, and we're going to talk about it for a couple of reasons. One is its share price is under pressure, and two, it's got a big product launch coming up. Shall I do one of my little potted histories? We love those. <laughs> right. So 1976, this was a company started by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. There was a third person, a guy called Ronald Wayne, but he didn't last very long. He dropped out fairly early into it and he got $800 for his share at the time of the business. I bet he regretted that. Anyway, so yeah, two lads in their early 20s and they were, you know, computer, I don't want to say nerds because I hate that word, but you know. They were obsessed with computers and they basically... Why do you hate the word nerds? I just think, find it, I think it's a bit insulting, don't oh, you? Because no, I, we all... I love nerds. Oh, I love my inner nerd. Oh, do you? And okay. my inner geek. Yeah. So they were a couple of nerds and uh, their first product was basically a kit to build your own computer. And obviously hobbyists in that, that world loved that, uh, but they realised they'd get a much bigger market if they actually created a whole thing and put together a personal computer. And that's what they did. And then it went through various iterations and eventually progressed to the Apple Macintosh, which was the first kind of commercially successful 
personal computer that had like a graphical user interface. So it wasn't just like your usual kind of text lines that they'd had before. But then this is where the drama came. There was a big fallout at the top. Jobs wasn't really getting on with the CEO they had at the time, this fellow called John Scully, who'd been, he'd nicked from Pepsi. He was like the youngest CEO of Pepsi. They'd brought him into Apple, but they all kept arguing. Jobs and Wozniak ended up leaving in 1985. Apple went through various problems and various CEOs until 1997, when they got Steve Jobs back uh, by basically buying his company. He ousted the CEO. And yeah, at that time, the business was close to bankruptcy. So Steve Jobs came back. He cut the product numbers down. He cut staff at the time, tried to revamp the whole business. And then the huge turnaround came with the launch of the iPod in 2001. Do you remember that? Because that obviously radically changed how we listen to music. I was 19 at the time. I had a little um, like little mini disc player, which I thought, I was the bee's knees with and then came out the iPod which just revolutionized everything and then following that you've got the iPhone in 2007 remember people queuing outside to get their hands on the first iPhone and since then well over two billion of them probably more have been sold so that's the, your little potted history I mean, and, and I think you know in a nutshell what we're talking about is a company that has gone through periods of treading water and decline but they've just had this genius at coming up with products that transform our lives, mm. um, you know, and indeed a whole industries, whether it's the iPod transforming the, the, the music industry, whether it's the iPhone, I mean, for better or everything. worse, you know, the smartphone, the, I mean, you know, I, there are you know, quite a lot of people who think the smartphone is the most evil invention in I don't. history. Quite a lot, I think Can quite a lot of my close family <laughs> <laughs> looking at my obsession with the with smartphones we see it in that way. Do you but, get this thing in your family? My little girl literally comes up to me now and takes my phone out of my hand and puts it down and goes, no, mama. But do you also- They're the cigarettes of our day, aren't they? <laughs> do you remember the move though from a Nokia to an iPhone? Like, did, do you remember when you, you and I just thought, it, but in I'm my never going to be able to- Because I was a complete BlackBerry obsessive. So in my uh, case, yeah. it wasn't Nokia to iPhone, it was BlackBerry to iPhone. Can I tell you my mini BlackBerry story, Go by on. the way? So back in 2013, BlackBerry were launching, I think it might have been the BlackBerry 10, and I was interviewing their UK boss. So it was RIM, wasn't it, mm. BlackBerry? And I was interviewing their UK boss, Stephen Bates, and they'd really been not doing well obviously against Apple by this point and so I was doing this interview with him and it turned out to be a legendary interview because he just didn't answer the question so I kept saying so what what went wrong at BlackBerry I asked him no less than seven times what went wrong and he just kept saying we're really excited today because it's the launch of the BlackBerry 10 and then so he was he was basically a robot yeah and then basically following that interview the share price tanked he got the boot and it became a, a training tool of how not to do interviews in the media. And That's I never found out what went wrong. <laughs> but anyway, there you are. So back to but, Apple. But, but it is an extraordinary and really quite now long history. And as you say, a business worth well over a two trillion dollars. It hit I mean, three just, trillion last year, twice uh, and, as well. And, I mean, look, the shares have come off in the last few days, five or six percent. One of the reasons for that is that their sales are under 
pressure, particularly in China. And there are also sort of political pressures on them to change their sourcing because, of course, the American government doesn't like the economic dependence on China of the American economy. And given so much of their stuff is made in China, they're under pressure to source much of the bits of their iPhone and their products from other countries. So they've got lots of, of issues. And actually, if you look at their sales over the past year or so, they've basically been falling gently. Um, They've and been so, behind so, so, on AI as well, though, haven't they? Th- That's they have. part just, of this, the generative AI. But just because in terms of the sort of market significance, they are one of the so-called Magnificent Seven. Now, the Magnificent Seven are those huge technology giants, including Alphabet and NVIDIA and Microsoft, that absolutely dominated stock market performance over the past year. And, you know, stock markets essentially globally, if you think about stock markets as being interconnected, would have, you know, done not very much last year, except for the absolute boom in tech stocks, including Apple. And, you know, there's now a big issue around Apple about where the future growth is going to come from. And they have got a big new product coming up. Yes, the Vision Pro, which, you know, it's like these headsets we've seen for augmented reality. And they're saying this is spatial computing. So it's like a digital overlay on the real world, which to me just sounds like augmented reality still. So just to talk through the sort of sci-fi bit of it, Right, so you put on this helmet and you can access all sorts of apps and programs, including things like email programs, by just moving your eyeballs. Because th- this mask can see what you're doing with your eyes and you can look at a program and open it, right? Just oh, I'd know, worry about and, that because I it, tend to, sometimes my eyes go wild. <laughs> Could you imagine I'd be sending you know, replies to emails in the middle of the night by accident and all sorts? Well, if you were wearing your headset, you would yeah. be absolutely right. So this is supposed, I mean, even though I think, I think they're, pricing at about $3,500, which sounds an enormous amount of money if it's just a sort of game gimmick, but it's not mm. supposed to be that. It this... is supposed to be a fully-fledged new way of computing. You know, you can sort of move your fingers in the air and you'll be able to sort of presumably type that way. I don't know. I mean, Do uh, people uh, want to uh, do uh, that, though? Because isn't the whole point of life now and having a phone is you can have your phone, but you can also do a million other things. Like we are in a multi-screen world now. I just can't imagine. I feel claustrophobic at the thought of my life being on my head, you know, in this kind of mask thing. Also, they've had loads of problems with this, haven't they? Because it's been seven years in development. Last year, they kind of did a kind of soft launch of it, but there's been loads of issues with them. They've had to cut the production down as well. They're- so I think I think at the launch, I think it's what, 400,000 um, will be the initial release of product in America, something like that, which by it? their standards is nothing. But uh, Tim Cook, the boss, and let's be clear, Cook has got a lot of things right in terms of his ability to launch products over the years. You know, he does believe that it's going to, over the medium term, make a huge difference. Do you think it will? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, do you want I, mean, to, I don't feel... I you mean, are the person, though, that this, this is designed for, isn't it? I mean, you've got like a million things. Yeah. For everyone who's listening to this, I just want you to visualise oh, that Robert Peston currently has a laptop in front of him. It's the dirtiest laptop I've ever seen in my life. It needs a clean. I am going to out you on that. And two phones, which whilst you're talking, you also constantly look at. You are the man who is going to be wearing one of these, aren't you? Well, maybe. I mean, shall I wear it on the programme once I can get my hands on it? We haven't got the three and a half grand to pay for it, though. (laughs) (laughs) But so, so just to kind of wrap things up on Apple then, this is a company, though, that despite we've seen these negative headlines about share prices coming down and things, they're a company that's got a lot of cash in reserve, which is important. They're a company that everyone's still obsessed with seeing what they're going to bring out next. And even if it 
doesn't necessarily catch everyone's imagination. Loads of people will buy it to begin with, won't they? And so we don't need to worry about Apple. Look, Apple is not going bust. <laughs> the issue, I said earlier about the Magnificent Seven that basically dominated stock market performance over the last year or so. And stock markets without that performance would not really have risen, right? And so the question is effectively whether these businesses are overvalued. It's quite interesting that medium-sized tech companies in that period did not rise. And so it is certainly plausible to me that the marginally smaller tech companies will do quite well over the next year in share price terms. Whether or not there is much, you know, to use that awful technical phrase, upside in the Apple share price, I think many people would doubt, mm. you know, given that at the moment, it's not clear what's going to give them sales lift off again. Yeah, I'm waiting to see what they do with the generative AI, though, because, you know, we've had Microsoft saying they're going to have this AI button now on the keyboard. Although there's talk about this AI being integrated into the software from Apple, we've yet to see what that's going to look like. So no, totally right. And and so, as you say, you would never bet on Apple not finding a route back. I'm just not clear what that route back is at the moment. Well, someone will think of something. Right. A final uh, story that we wanted to talk about today is something that hit the headlines. It was comments made by Howard Davies, chair of NatWest. So he'd said in an interview that currently it's not that difficult for people to get on the housing ladder. And obviously loads of people have kicked off about this saying he's completely out of touch with the reality. He's had to clarify that he didn't intend to underplay the challenges by his face. But what, I mean, what do you think, Robert? You know, Howard. Yeah, I know her quite well. I mean, you know, he's apologised, he's accepted that he, shall we say, chose his words not desperately wisely. I think what he was trying to say, which is true, is one that when house prices fall, and they have a bit, I mean, you know, certainly in London, they've fallen a few percentage points across the country on average. They're, if you look at the sort of Halifax and the nationwide, which are the two sort of firms, banks that look at this closely over the past year, what falls of one or two percent on average, it varies in different parts of the world. So house prices have fallen a bit. And of course, wages have gone up fairly significantly for the first part of last year, less than inflation, now a bit more than inflation. And affordability is normally looked at as the ratio of the house price to average earnings. And that ratio has come down over the last year or so. It's come down a bit, but not enough to you know, say that all home buyers' problems, you know, particularly first-time buyers' problems, are over, and it's easy to get on the housing ladder. And you know, it's also important to recognise quite how unaffordable houses became. So there was a report done. In Are you reading from your book again? Uh, I'm reading from my book again. There was a report done at the beginning of last year by Schroders, and it was about what 175 years of data will tell us about house price affordability in Britain. And this is what they said in that report. And this is only a year ago. They said the last time house prices were this expensive relative to average earnings was in the year 1876. Whoa. Right? Now, there is no way that in the course of the last year, houses have suddenly become fantastically affordable again, given how unaffordable they were in the very recent past. They are a bit more affordable. If you were to do 
what, as I understand it, NatWest have done, which is, I regard, a very spurious calculation, which is to look at average house prices against, and this is a very sexist measure, full-time earnings for a man, then as it happens, that ratio has come down to something that's a bit more like where it was in the sort of on average over the preceding 20 years Hang or on so. A minute. Explain that. So what, it's easier for a man to get a house? Um, I don't know why they've done that calculation. I think it's just so historically. It's just that I think historically. Women uh, just you know, the, 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 you know, data was measured on the basis of a male earner. But I have to say, it's a ludicrous way of looking at it because all, you know, households are not dominated by one, you know, man earning anymore. There isn't even a man in my house. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so there are so many homes, you know, where incomes are, you know, dual incomes or one and a half. You know, it's, all, it's a sort of mad, it's a sort of mad calculation. But actually, if you then look at, and I have done this, you know, I looked at the, the Halifax data and the nationwide data and then related it to the ONS's measure of average earnings. Yes, houses are a bit more affordable, but if you look back over the last 30 years, they are still very expensive, particularly for first-time buyers. And the big problem for first-time buyers, quite apart from that ratio, is for most mortgages, you still have to get a pretty significant deposit. You know, quite often you have to get a 20% deposit. It's impossible for, for somebody- That's the point you know, in all of this. You know, getting that deposit on the basis of these enormously expensive, how do you accumulate 30, 40,000 quid yeah. if you're a young owner? It's well, this, this is my point. So there's a lot of of um, my team that I work with on my show, they're all at that point now where they're kind of late 20s trying to buy their first home. And, you know, their renters who are paying, you know, I think the average rent now is something like £1,200 a month, which is a substantial amount of money, which you can see, you know, being able to afford a mortgage at that rate. There's lots of people who'll be paying that in their mortgage. But the problem is, is they can't raise the money for the deposit. And I know Resolution Foundation have done research on this, saying that quite often it's the parents now having to to help. Uh, you oh, know, no, massively. They, and a bank of mum and dad, as, as we all know, is now one of the biggest providers of finance for people who want to buy. So half of first time buyers in their 20s get help of an average of 25 grand from their parents. And this just reinforces, obviously, inequality, because it means basically yeah. the children of rich kids do you know find it easy to get on the housing line. And that's completely unfair. And you know, really bad for social cohesion. And the other day, we haven't, we haven't even talked about interest rates. Yeah. I mean, you know, two or three years ago, the cost of a medium-term mortgage was close. To, it wasn't zero, but it was, you know, you, you could get mortgages of 1%, 2% that lasted, you know, three, four, five years. Now we're talking multiples of that, even with interest rates. We talked about this on an earlier program, even with mortgage rates coming down. You know, you are still having to pay, you know, well over 4%, in some cases over, even now over 5% for a mortgage. I, mean, I think the other thing that Howard Davis was trying to say, which is true, which is that, you know, banks are desperately trying to shovel mortgages out the door because they rather like locking in these high interest rates. There's no problem with the supply of mortgages. There's a ton of them. The problem is they're not affordable. Just on that as well, you know, in terms of comparing how times have changed, the most common living arrangement for an adult between 18 and 34 back in 1997 was being in a couple with children. Now, the most common way of living with your parents. It's with your parents, I know. Yeah. It is absolutely... Shocking. And people live with their parents now up until their 30s and in mid-30s. It is really not that unusual. I mean, the one, so the one, I suppose, positive thing, although if you're a homeowner, you may not agree with me, is if, and I think it's likely to be the case, house prices continue 
what appears to be a relatively gentle decline. And I think if, I mean, I'm not the only person who thinks this. Quite, you know, quite a lot of forecasters assume that over the next year, house prices will continue to drift two, three, four percent lower, and earnings continue to rise at the current rate. You know, currently earnings rising at sort of seven percent or so. It is theoretically possible that by the time we get to the general election at the end of next year, that houses will feel more affordable and be more affordable. Ah, it doesn't give that many people that much time to still save for a deposit between now and an election. No, no, but but we have a massively dysfunctional market. But it's also just important to recognise that we got hooked as a nation on rising house prices. We somehow, you know, for, for many people, this was the equivalent of saving for a pension. It's, uh, you know, no way to run an economy because at the end of the day, you know, houses are for living in. They are not a tool for saving. And, you know, the problem with essentially viewing housing as an investment is in the end, uh, it deprived people, particularly young people, of the most important function of the housing market, which is to provide, you know, a roof over your head. Which just, I find very triggering. Again, just to remind everyone, do you remember me telling you I bought a house in Middlesbrough when I was 22, thinking that that was a good investment and I sold it last year for the same price I bought it. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a terrible investment decision. Do not believe anything I say on this show. <laughs> right. Should we wrap things up? I think we, I think we should wrap things up. I think I think I should say that... Um, You've no, made a no, load no, of money no, from no, houses. No, 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 nobody believes your false modesty. <laughs> right. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Um, we will get to your questions definitely in future episodes. We might even have to dedicate whole episodes to it. And also send them in rest is money at gmail.com or just go through our socials as well the rest is money please do uh, send in your suggestions of people we should interview too who you'd like to hear on the show I know it went down very well with Jeremy Hunt so hopefully we'll be able to inspire you with lots more people and their business stories and thoughts on the world so thanks for joining us see you next week bye bye <laughs> <laughs>